I came down with some sniffles recently, so just being cautious. Uh, really, I was just missing wearing the masks, right? I mean, everyone misses that. I know, right? Yeah. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is where we are headed this week as we near the end of Daniel this fall. Uh, now, the book of Daniel encompasses Daniel's life, uh, who as a young boy was taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. He lived there and served in that empire for decades until he became an elderly man. Uh, and throughout his time, he served multiple different kings and lived under multiple different kingdoms there. These stories are all told through the first half of the book of Daniel. And then, the later part of his life, Daniel began having visions, which are recorded in the second half of the book of Daniel. And these visions range from images of mutant monsters to devastating the earth to multi-horned livestock battling each other to these cryptic calendars and timelines, right? We've, we've read through these the last several weeks. And in each instance, we are told that the vision has to do with kingdoms that are to come on the earth. And in each instance, we are assured that though these wild, monstrous, beastly kingdoms will come, every kingdom but God's will come to an end. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, right? We've heard this over and over again and seen it throughout the book of Daniel. Well, there is one final vision left for us in the book of Daniel, and it spans chapters 10 to 12, the end of the book. Last week, we saw the long, lively introduction to this vision as Daniel fasted and prayed for his people, and then an angelic messenger appeared to comfort him and also share about the supernatural struggle it was to get to him. But ultimately, this messenger arrives to share this final vision with Daniel. And so chapter 11 contains the primary content of this vision. And then chapter 12, which we'll get to next week, has the conclusion. Just like this vision had a lengthy introduction, it also is a lengthy vision. Daniel chapter 11 spans 45 verses, and they are dense verses. There's a lot packed in. Gone are the colorful monsters and animal images. Here, we find a plain description of kingdom warring against kingdom. It begins with a conflict between Persia and Greece. Then we see ongoing conflicts between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And then finally, there are some large, looming characters who come in to cause destruction and harm. That's what we have in Daniel 11. So if you really like history, 
and you really like intricate details, this is the chapter for you, all right? Uh, if you don't like those things, then it may only take a couple of verses for your eyes to glaze over and for you to zone out. Truly, it is an intricate and dizzying chapter, as we will hear in a moment. As I was preparing for this week, reading through some different um, commentaries and so on, I I read about a pastor who prayed regarding this chapter, Lord, I don't even like reading this chapter. How do I interest my congregation in it? And I thought, all right, yeah, I kind of feel that way too. I was reading it and I was like, ugh. What is this? What am I supposed to say here, right? There was another commentator who observed this chapter might be treated in Bible classes, but we do not see how it can be used for a sermon or for sermons. And yet here we are, Daniel chapter 11, and I am attempting to preach it. Should we give it a go? All right. I don't know what I would have done if you had said no. I guess just (laughs) sat down and we could take communion. Um, Since this is a long chapter, I would love two or three helpers in reading it. Uh, So we've got, I see, uh, Bill and Linda and Melissa and one more person. Oh, who? Mary? Okay, so if the four of you can um, come up here, and here's what we can do. I will keep my distance because of my sniffles, um, and I will read with this mic, and the rest of us can pass this other mic. Yeah, if you bring that, I'll just come over here. And so um, I'll start us off, and then uh, we can all take turns with a slide each. Daniel chapter 11 beginning in verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, His empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong. One of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they'll become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she'll not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she'll be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the kings of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, 
but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands. Yet he will not remain triumphant, for the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army, fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come, on, will come and build up sage rams and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish his, himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastal lands and will take many of them, but a commander will put, put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country and will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His, his successor will send out a tax collector to main, maintain the royal splendor in a few years. However, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army... He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, 
because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, or will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortress with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who would acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt. With the Libyans and Crushites in submission, but reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy all the in, oh, <laughs> annihilate many. Uh, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. The word of God. For the people of God. Thanks be to God.
Amen. Thank you all for getting us through that chapter. Uh, As we continue, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Even chapters like this, filled with details that we don't know what to make of or do with, that are hard to keep track of. Lord, as we listen and reflect on your word this morning, help us to hear your voice and help us to receive what you have to give. As we reflect, would you sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, how's everyone doing? Yeah, get a good nap in? Uh, Seriously, though, this stuff is quite exciting and action-packed. I I imagine that if I sat down with someone uh, and asked them to describe to me the plot of Game of Thrones, it would sound similar to Daniel chapter 11. Um, And I probably would understand it about as much. Uh, there, you know, I, I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. I don't really know what all happened, but I know there was a lot, uh, and it was back and forth and, and all kinds of stuff. The only difference is Daniel 11 has fewer dragons, I understand, than Game of Thrones. Uh, but we did already have monsters back in chapter 7 and 8. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of drama and scandal and so on throughout this chapter. So let me help us make sense of this long chapter and all of its fine-tuned details. There are essentially four sections to this chapter, right? Four sections. Verses 2 through 4 describe the conflicts between Persia and Greece, between Persia and Greece. If you remember the vision of the ram and the goat, Back in chapter 8, Gabriel later came to describe it as a conflict between Persia and Greece. So that's what we're seeing play out in these verses. Verse 2 says Persia will have some more kings. One of them will charge against Greece, but ultimately Greece will overpower them. Verse 3, a mighty king will arise from there. Most scholars understand this to be a reference to Alexander the Great who dominated the world stage during his lifetime, but ultimately then got sick, went home, and died. Um, And as verse 4 concludes, his kingdom did not go to his descendants, but was divided up into four different kingdoms between four of his generals. Two of these became the central focus for the next section of the chapter, referred to as the north and the south, right? Two of these remaining kingdoms from the empire of Alexander the Great. So verses 5 through 20 describe the ongoing conflicts between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And this is where things get very Game of Thronesy right? There are kings and commanders, there's alliances and deceptions, there's drama and sex that enter the picture as king's daughters begin to manipulate and control things. 
Now, why the focus on these two kingdoms in particular? And why call them the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south? Well, the reason is is that because they are on either side of Jerusalem. Uh, The kingdom of the north likely refers to the the Syrian uh, empire. The kingdom of the south refers to kind of the land of, of Egypt. And right between those two is Jerusalem where God's people would eventually return to from exile and be there while all of these constant conflicts are going on, right? So though they were back home, they were living in the midst of and in subjection to two constantly warring kingdoms, right? They were right in the middle of all of these conflicts. This string of wars is told in fifth verses of feisty history that unfold like a montage that covers about 200 years. And again, historians can map all of these specific events and details and circumstances uh, to specific kings and kingdoms and things that are known from history through about the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C. Um, But I will spare you those details. If you want to know them, I've got some books to recommend. Um, but then the narrative slows down, right? Right. In 15 verses, we've covered about 150 years. Then verses 21 through 35 focus in on the reign of a contemptible person, right? This figure will rule by duplicity and deceit, He will make and break agreements and attempt to overcome other kingdoms with brute force, but ultimately it all fails him. And so when he returns home, it says in verse 30, that he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, uh, against God's people, right? Because he did not succeed abroad, he will return home and take out his angst on God's people. Historians all agree that this contemptible person is a reference to a ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who ruled in the second century BC. There's well-documented history of how he persecuted the Jews. He disrupted and profaned the temple in Jerusalem, placed within it the abomination of desolation. Um, he was pre-Roman, yeah. Um, but yeah, right, right around there. Um, there's record of all kinds of terrible things that he did to God and, 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 and or, uh, you know, at God and, and at God's people. And so we had 15 verses of conflicts between the kings of the north and south, but then we get an equal amount of space, 15 verses about this one particularly brutal king. And all of this leads to the final 10 verses, verses 36 to 45, that depict a sort of grand finale of chaos and war. Now, historians and scholars disagree about how or whether these verses map onto history, but the point 
seems to be from the text that things will continue escalating and continue getting worse and more chaotic. The final verses describe in verse 36 a king who will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He's described as worshiping warfare and money. In verse 40, he battles against both the king of the north and the king of the south. He invades many countries, annihilates many people, and sets himself over the beautiful holy mountain, Zion, for the people of God. This final king in this grand finale, seems to infect the whole world. And he seems to be an enemy to everyone. We might call him the enemy. But the chapter concludes with a phrase made up of merely six Hebrew words that are translated, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So there's the big picture of this chapter. Are you tracking with all of this? A little bit? Not quite? It's a lot, right? Come on up. Um, all right, so Daniel 11 is this litany of kingdoms in constant war with each other while God's people are at first caught in the middle of them and then ultimately end up targeted directly. And all of this might be interesting to, you know, a history buff or uh, something like that, but why is this angelic messenger telling Daniel all of this? And for that matter, what are we to do with all of this today? Well, I don't think that this angel was filling Daniel in so that he would do great on his next round of future trivia. I don't even know if there is future trivia, but if there is, Daniel would have gotten it, right? I mean, he's got all the details figured out. Nor do I think that we are simply meant to walk away from it having learned a good bit about the late Hellenistic period, the, the, the last period of Greece. I believe that this chapter is meant to communicate something to us about the world, and about God, and it calls us to live in the world with God in a certain way, right? So what does it say to us? This chapter tells us that we live in a world where people are free to live as they choose, but that God is ultimately directing the final outcome. We live in a world where people are free to live as they choose, but God is ultimately directing the final outcome. Acknowledging this truth is the key to living wisely. That we live in a world where people can live how they want, but God is ultimately determining the final outcome. 
Living in that truth is the key to living wisely. We see these themes repeated a few times throughout the chapter. There's some repeated phrases that draw this out to us. The first of these repeated phrases describes a number of the kings throughout the chapter. And it's this phrase, he will do as he pleases. He will do as he pleases. We see this in verse 3, where a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. We see it again in verse 16, where it says, the invader will do as he pleases. And again in verse 36, the start of that grand finale, it says the king will do as he pleases. We live in a world where kings do as they please. People in power do what they want to do where they ruthlessly rule and oppress, where people suffer and God's people are persecuted. We live in a world where bad things happen to good people. This is the world that we live in. We live in a world where bad people do whatever they please. It is not ideal. It's not the world that God initially created it to be. But if you look around, if you watch or read any snippet of news, you know this is true, right? People use their power to oppress others and do what they please. This is the world we live in. We see it for 45 long verses in Daniel 11. But this is offset by another phrase that's repeated a few times throughout the chapter. This other phrase is, at the appointed time. At the appointed time. We see it in verse 27. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. We see it again in verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different than what it was before. And then once more, verse 35, the time of the end will still come at the appointed time. This phrase suggests that though all of these kings are doing as they please, their actions are bounded by God's appointed time. Limited by God's appointed time. Though people are free to live as they choose, God is directing the final outcome. And so with this in mind, the chapter provides us with pictures of what it looks like to live in foolishness or to live in wisdom. It shows us two stark contrasts between living 
foolishly and living wisely. Proverbs describes a fool like this. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. Right? Similarly, Psalm 37 says, The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Right? This is the pattern that we see over and over again in the saga of the kings of the north and the south and so on, right? In verse 3, we see that a mighty king will arise. And then in verse 4, after he's arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out. All right? It didn't go so well for him. Verse 5, the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger. Didn't work out too well for him. Verse 6. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. But she will not retain her power. And he and his power will not last. In those days she will be betrayed. Didn't work out too well for them. Verse 9. The king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south. But will retreat to his own country. Did not work out too well for him, right? We could keep going through the whole chapter this way. Over and over again, one king flexes their muscles only for it to not work out for them, only for it to all come to naught, right? Do you see this pattern? Do you get the point? By seeking to assert themselves in their own power, they always end up failing. They do as they please, but their actions amount to precisely nothing at all in the scheme of eternity. And then they keep doing it over and over again from one generation to another to another, right? This is the essence of foolishness. And yet it's the narrative of Daniel 11 And it's the narrative that we see as we look across history. So there's this picture of what it is to live foolishly, exerting one's own power over others. It will ultimately fail. But on the other hand, there is the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom. Proverbs says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means wisdom means living in the truth that though chaos surrounds us, God is directing the final outcome. To fear the Lord means to look to him ultimately and not fear all the other things that are going on. God is directing the final outcome. Wisdom means trusting that and living like God's kingdom truly is an everlasting kingdom. And we have a picture of this wisdom right in the middle of the chapter. Verse 33 says, Those who are wise will instruct many. 
though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. Many will be tempted by pressures and persecutions to turn away from trust in God, but wisdom continues trusting in God and calling others to trust in God, despite the sword, the fire, or the bars of a prison. Verse 35 continues, Some of the wise will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. This is huge. Verse 35 is a paradigm shift, right? Living in wisdom. Trusting God transforms experiences of pain and suffering from ones that are primarily discouragement to ones of refinement. Trusting in God transforms our suffering from merely a thing that debilitates us to something that refines and actually strengthens us. When foolishness is tested, it falls away. It falls apart. We see this in all the back and forths of all the battles in the kingdoms of this chapter. But when wisdom is tested, it is strengthened. In the kingdom of God, every fire that we encounter becomes an opportunity, a means of refinement. Every fire that we encounter becomes a means of refinement, of being refined and purified. To put it another way, in the kingdom of God, every death becomes an opportunity for resurrection. And so we are called to live in wisdom, trusting the Lord, proclaiming his everlasting kingdom and praying for it to come on earth as it is in heaven. So as we come to the conclusion, I want to invite you to consider some things. Are there areas in your life where you have lived like the kings of the north and the south? Are there ways that you have sought to build yourself up, to expand your own empire, your own kingdom? Are there times that it's caused you to lash out at others and intend harm to them in some way? Are there times that you've been driven to manipulate and deceive your way into getting what you want? Though these kinds of pursuits might feel good in the moment, even look like success in the exterior, these ways of living are ultimately foolish and will end in futility.
just as all the kings of the north and south lived and fought in futility. Perhaps there aren't these obvious signs of deception and destruction surrounding you and your life, but maybe you've just been living in a way that your fists are held tight, just clutching on to things, not wanting to let go, holding on to what you desperately want. The invitation in this chapter is to open your hands. To live in wisdom. To trust in God. To trust in God's provision. And seek God's kingdom. That is the invitation for us. To not live like warring kings of the north and the south but to live as people of the everlasting king. Something else I want you to consider. Are there areas in your life where you have experienced some measure of pain, of suffering, or oppression at the hands of others? Maybe you have been deceived or betrayed Maybe you feel discouraged or embittered about some things. I want you to hear this. The pain you've experienced is real. It's real. That suffering is real and it is right to grieve it. It is right to lament it. But I wonder if it's possible for these experiences of suffering and pain to become opportunities for refinement and growth. I wonder if experiences like these, rather than pushing us further from God or making us less like Christ, could draw us closer to God and give us characters that look more like Christ who knew suffering well. Can we live like the wise of Daniel 11, who face hardships so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end? In other words, can we live like Jesus? It is only possible to live this way if amidst the chaos of life, we trust that God is ultimately directing the final outcome. Battles rage around us, but God is still king, and only his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Amen.